we are starting Sefer Shemot. I definitely recommend uh, whoever is following to uh, listen to the closing remarks on Sefer Bereshit because we kind of summarized everything that we've been studying until now in, that, in, that, in those closing remarks. And we did the Haftarah yesterday, so you could find the Haftarah from Sefer Yirmiyahu on the podcast as well. I'm uh, doing this from abroad, so it's hard to keep up the typical schedule. But um, we are doing our best not to fall behind. Sefer Shemot obviously is the transition from Am Yisrael coming down as a family. And immediately we're going to see Am Yisrael quickly develop into a people in Sefer Shemot. And what happens to the people? We had a, a, a few concerns at the end of, last, at the, end of the, la- the last book with the way Am Yisrael was in Goshen, benefiting from the fat of the land while the Egyptians were all selling themselves, uh, we saw that that potentially could have built resentment. So we're not surprised to see that immediately once the Jews begin to proliferate, there is going to be that resentment there. The, the Pasuk begins, we have a, a small segment to begin Sefer Shemot, which just introduces the family. This is the first chapter of Shemot, the first Pasuk. And these are the names of the children of Israel that came to Mitzrayim with Yaakov. They came, each person with their household. All of his sons. And the descendants of Yaakov were 70. The Yosef Hayab in Mitzrayim. But Yosef was already in Mitzrayim. And Yosef and his brothers and that whole generation, they died. And the Jews, uh, this is a difficult thing to translate because these words are also similar. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. Okay, so this first segment, uh, one of the things that all the commentaries point out is that it opens up with the, with the letter Vav. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. That Vav is a Vav Achibur. It connects, it connects the topic of our parasha and our sefer to the previous book. So that's one of the things, that the brilliant things about our book is that it flows seamlessly from the story of Genesis. Despite the fact that in Bereshit, the relationship with God was more of a personal one. It was between the Avot and their families. Now we're, our, the relationship with God is going to... Moshe is going to have a direct relationship with God, but God's relationship with Am Yisrael is going to be more national. And things are going to be very, very different in this story. Uh, for example, one of the things we noticed in, in Shemot is that the Jews have no problem procreating. You know, that was one of the main problems we had in Bereshit because we're not dealing with the personal lives of the Avot anymore. We're dealing with the national nationhood of the Jewish people. Procreation isn't an issue anymore and they actually grow very, very quickly. So despite the fact that the books are different and the themes are going to be different and the setting is different and uh, it's going to be a more national scope in this book, it's still a pure continuation of Bereshit, which is why the Vav is there. Why are we repeating the family of Yaakov here. So it's a, it's a question because we at the, at the end of Sefer Bereshit, we already did have a counting of the household of Yaakov and we counted the 70. So why are we reintroducing them again? And this seems to be because it's introducing us, it's telling us that 
it's trying to tell us that the Jews grew into a very mighty and, and, a, and a fruitful nation, and it's telling us where they started from. So it's saying, and by the way, the Jews grew. Uh, it could also just be that um, they, it just, the next passage says that they, that whole generation just passed away. So it's like always like whenever, like right as they're departing from us from the story, they just like mention them again. Okay, so they, I, I like that also. David is saying that it's, it's, it may be re- recounting their names again because it wants to tell us that they passed away. So in con- the concluding remarks to their lives is to just quickly remind us who was there. Um, maybe kind of like um, what it does in, in Bereshit, when it ends a person's life, it goes through his later descendants or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so but, but the Peshat, I think in the Rashbam, is that because it's going to tell us that they multiplied, it wants to tell us how, what they started at. So it's, trying, it's, it's essentially saying they went from 70 to very, very many. Okay? And that is, and then Pasuk Zayn, that Pasuk, in Pasuk 7, it tells us about the growth of Am Israel, the, the, the rapid growth of Bnei Israel. And the wording that's used is Paru Vayishritsu. Um, the Paruva Yishasu are words that should remind us of, of the first parak of Bereshit when it describes the teeming and the growth of the animals. So you could see that as maybe just a coincidence, or you could see that as indicating something deeper in that while in Bereshit, earlier in the first book of Bereshit, it's describing how God created the world uh, equivalently or on a parallel path, we are now exploring how God created the nation. And these are both, it's using the same wording for growth that we saw in Bereshit when God let the animals grow and multiply. It's using that for the birth of Am Yisrael as well. Kind of telling you that the birth of Am Yisrael is something with significance to the creation of all of the world. And it's something that has, has great grand significance to that extent. Um, finally, the, the Rashi says that the women would give birth six children at a time, six children per womb. And the question you may ask is, we always like to understand where these Midrashim come from and what they mean. And this seems to be a very simple Midrash. What could be the meaning of the Midrash here? Rashi seems to be getting that, and the Midrash is probably building off the fact that he uses six synonyms for procreation, for proliferation. Paru, vayishetsu, vayirbu, vayatsmu, bimod, meod. Those six words are all describing their growth, and because of that, the Midrash comes up with the idea that maybe they were having six kids at a time. You know, uh, six kids in one womb. Okay, so that's the introduction to Sefer Shemot. Now, uh, there's a paragraph break and we move to Pasuk 8. There was a new king on Mitzrayim that did not know Yosef. There are two opinions. Was this a new king or was it just a, a different king with different uh, ordinances and laws? Uh, the Peshat seems to be there was a completely new king and because it was a new king, if you can imagine this, a new king um, obviously has no loyalties to Yosef. And he also knows and he realizes that there's one very, very big population of people in Goshen that are enjoying the fruits of the land and don't seem to be paying up the taxes like the rest of the Egyptians. And you could imagine why this king would be suspect and would not, would not be uh, very appreciative of Am Israel. Okay, Pasuk 9. And he said to his people, He said he says to his people, Behold, Bnei Israel are greater and stronger than us. They're greater than us in number and they are stronger than us, which is obviously a lie. It's probably not true, but it's a, a way a king can scare his people 
into, into you know, the kings always love when their people are afraid. People in power love when the population is fearful because it always allows them to expand their power even more. I mean, you see that today. It's like the people in power love the fact that people are scared of the virus because it allows people in power to expand their power even more. Okay, Pasuk Yudan, we saw that, by the way, with Yosef. When the people were desperate for food, they said, let us sell ourselves into slavery to you. So here again, the king of Egypt is lying to his people and he's saying, Ben Israel are greater and stronger than us. Now this is going to be a lie that continues throughout all of Jewish history. Anytime someone wants to win over a, 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 a population that is not content with their lives, he will use this, this uh, idea here that the Egyptian king is using and saying, oh, it's the Jews that are making your lives miserable. It's the Jews that you have to be jealous of. And then that's a good way of getting people, once the people could shirk the responsibility for their lives and they could blame it on someone else, like the Jew, it makes it much easier. So we see all of the, the tools for a dictator taking control and power are being used in Egypt. So then Paro says, Let us be wise with them. Let us be wise with them, lest they grow too fast. And it will be when we will have war with our enemies, they will go join the side of our enemies and they will fight against us and they will leave the land. Meaning after they have plundered and spoiled everything. Okay? So the first thing that Paro does is he puts taskmasters or tax collectors, that these are tax collectors that would, the, the tax was physical labor. So they put physical labor tax on them they put a physical labor tax on them. And they build, they built cities of storage for Paro, the cities of Pitom and Ra'amses. And, and Ra'amses, we were familiar with before, seems to be a city that is within Goshen. So that would obviously make sense because the Jews are still living in Goshen at this time. One thing to note is that Paro says, Let us deal intelligently with them. And the intelligence in his plan seems to be that Paro is very wary and he's, he knows how to slowly, slowly, slowly strip Am Israel of, of all of their status. Paro is not going to be doing this in one fell swoop. He's not just going to tell all of the Egyptians to throw people into the water. It starts with physical labor, which is something that's to be expected. Even in Am Israel, uh, whenever the give onim, came and they, they, they uh, tricked Yoshua into, into, into making a peace agreement with them, the Gibonim ended up becoming the laborers from Israel. They became the water jars and the tree cutters, right? So it's not a foreign idea for people who are foreign to become the slave laborers or the laborers, the physical laborers for the people who are native. So this isn't a really big ask. He's... Paro is starting by saying, okay, you Jews in Goshen, you were enjoying so much the fat of the land for free, now you have to pay up with physical labor. Now his hope is that the physical labor is going to cause them to stop procreating. But what happens, Pasuk 12, The more they made them suffer, the more they grew. And they became disgusted from Bnei Israel. There's also a... Future tense. What is that? Why is it saying it in the future tense? I think honestly, I think it's more of like um. Just just because we already said, because Paro said 
Penny red, penny so blue. there's so so the, the Peshat the Peshat answer is that that's just a linguistic thing. It it means that and so they grew and so they expanded, right? Uh, that sometimes you have the tenses in Hebrew, especially in more like poetic verses. If you want to give something a poetic flair, you can change the tense of the word. As Yashir Moshe Hazot. So then Moshe sang this song. Now that's past tense, but the word is Yashir in the future tense. That's a it's a poetic device that's used in Tanakh to switch words, especially words that are that are um, you know this is almost like a poetic sentence. And the more he made them suffer, the more they grew. You know, it's a it's a poetic sentence, so it's it's using the poetic that poetic tool of flipping something from the past tense to the future tense. But if you look in Rashi, Rashi picks up on that, and that's maybe what what uh, uh, inspired Rashi's comments that there was actually a bat kol, like a voice of God, that came out and said, "You Paro are telling the Jews that they will not grow, and I am saying that they will grow." So if you look in Rashi, you'll see him, he's probably building his comments off the fact that the word is in the, in the wrong tense, seemingly. Okay, Pasuk 13, And the Mitzrim, they worked at the Jews with back-breaking labor. So first stage was simple labor. That didn't work. The Jews kept procreating. Second stage is Farech labor, which is more intense labor. They embittered their lives with difficult work, with uh, mortar and brick and all a manner of, of service in the field. All of their work that they made them work in backbreaking labor. So that's stage two. Apparently, this didn't, didn't work either. Even the hard, the, the backbreaking work didn't stop the Jews from procreating. It's actually interesting, by the way, that um, poorer societies, poor societies typically procreate faster than wealthy societies. So it's almost like Paro is taking away their status of wealth from Goshen, and then they're procreating more. It's almost, that seems to be the law of how things even work, and Paro just wasn't aware of it. Okay? Pasuk mm-hmm. Tetvav um, now is Paro's third stage. See, he's doing things very carefully. The king of Mitzrayim said to the, um, nur- the, wet nur- the nurses of the Hebrews or the Hebrew nurses. Very uh, vague and, and, and ambiguous what Lam means. Could either mean the nurses for the Hebrews or the Hebrew nurses. Now, it seems like it is the Hebrew nurses. Uh, but but both opinions are very very valid. There is proof that it's the nurses of the Hebrews. I'll show you soon. Okay, One of them was called Shifra, and the other one was named Pua. These are probably non-Jewish names. Shifra comes probably for, comes from the word for beauty, and Pua uh, does mean in Hebrew there is a word Pua which means to like um, to to soothe. With words, so the way a nurse is always soothing children with their words, so that's what this pu'a was known for. So shifra was would beautify the child as they came out of the womb, and pu'a would kind of uh, would speak to them and calm them down as they were crying. So Paro said to these two uh, nurses, he said, "When you help these Jewish women give birth, ur iten al and you see them on the birth stool, im benhu If it's a boy, kill it." 
But if it's a girl, let it live. And they feared God, these maidservants, these midwives, they, they feared God, and they did not do as was spoken to them by the king of Egypt, and they kept the kids alive. So, so the fact that, yeah. That, that's like, a, like whenever Abraham and Yitzchak, they would go down to Egypt or to the place of Abimelech, they would say like, there's no Yerat Elohim in this place, yes. so they might kill me. But so now saying they are Yerat Hashem, they, they, didn't, they didn't kill. Right, right, that's beautiful. So, and that's what I wanted to focus on. Uh, what David is saying is that we saw when, when Avimelech goes to Abraham and says, why did you not tell me that she's your wife? And, uh, and Abraham says, because there was no fear of God in this place, he would have killed me on behalf of my wife, for, in, or, for my wife. And he uses the word, Yira'at Elohim, fear of God. So it seems that we, something we pointed out, that the fear of God, meaning the word Elohim, is always, it's typically used, uh, it's a universal fear of God. It's, it's, it's valuing life, it's the ability, it's the, it's the recognition that we cannot kill. And it is used by goyim as well as with Jews. So one of the hints that these mialdot, that these maidservants, that these midwives were not Jewish, is that it uses the word vatirena mialdot et ha-elohim, the same way the fear of God is used, the fear of Elohim is used by Avimelech. So that may be proof that they were non-Jewish women, which would be a beautiful story. Because then if they're non-Jewish, it shows that a person doesn't have to be Jewish to have fear of God and recognition of the value of life. And it's also a beautiful story how a person, an Egyptian woman, could go against the evil laws of the dictator out of fear of God. You know, there's nothing more that a dictator hates than a, a, a society that worships God. Because if a society worships God and has values that are objective and that are superior to the laws that are dictated by the dictator, that means that the dictator does not have complete control. So one of the things we see, for example, in, in the Soviet Union and in communist China is that they outlawed all religion. And the reason, it was very systematic why they would do that, it's because if you, if you get rid of religion and you get rid of the value system that's independent of the laws of the government, then the people, their highest value becomes a worship of the dictator, and then that gives the dictator complete and absolute power. So we see uh, the civil disobedience on behalf of the midwives. Whether or not they were Jewish, uh, they can go either way. Um, but again, that, that's the key word uh, that they feared God. Um, another thing that this is the third stage in Paro's, uh, in Paro's plan, what the Ibn Ezra points out is that these women were probably the chief midwives for the whole system of giving birth because it doesn't make sense that two midwives would have been in control of enough births to actually make a dent into the Jewish population. So it seems like he went to the two that were the main ones that were servicing the entire Jewish population. So the king of Egypt called to the Mialdot and he said to them, why did you do this thing and you kept alive the, uh, the kids? And they said to Paro, because these Egyptian women, I mean, the, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, because they are lively. Before the Mialid even gets there, they give birth. Now, this is a lie. And another thing is that, that we just gain so much respect for these two midwives because um, 
they're, they're able to lie to Paro, which is a very scary thing to do, to lie to someone. You know, in, in their society, Paro, yeah, as we saw with Yosef, these Egyptian kings claimed that they could do divination, like the Gavia of Yosef, where he was kind of faking, like he was able to divine uh, what would happen. So to lie to someone who is esteemed as a god is a very scary thing to do which goes to show how great these women were. Uh, maybe that's why the Midrash tells us that this was these, uh, this Shifra and Puah women were actually Yochebed and Miriam, which would make sense because of how great they are. I mean, it, it would make sense that, that Yochebed and Miriam would be the family members of Moshe. Another thing to notice is that they describe the women as lively. They say that the Jewish women are, chay, are like chayot. And the Midrash says that they're like animals that procreate on their own and very easily. And that also goes in line with the, the way that we originally described them as being paru, vayishretsu, vayirbu, vayatzmu. The word sharetsu uh, for, for the, the proliferation of Am Yisrael and their growth in numbers is a word that's typically used by animals. So it's almost like they're, they're, the, the growth of Am Yisrael is unnaturally animal-like in how fast it's happening. And this is something that the midwives are pointing out to here as well. Sorry, and the God did good to the Mialdot, and the, the nation became many, and they became very strong. So Am Yisrael continued to grow. And it was because the Mialdot feared God, God made them houses. Very hard to understand what that means, what this Pasuk means. Um, uh, a theory that I have potentially is that these women who were helping other women give birth, maybe, maybe there were women who were younger and who were waiting to have a family of their own. And because they were giving Am Yisrael the ability to procreate and to have kids without the fear of Paro, God ended up rewarding them with Batim. Batim in the Torah typically means a family. So God maybe rewarded these midwives, these younger midwives with families of their own because of what they did in supporting Am Yisrael. Okay, and then Pasuk 22, And Paro then says to all of his nation saying, any son who is born, send him into the river. And any daughter you can keep alive. So now we see the, the full plan of Paro coming full circle uh, where he's telling not just the midwives to, do, to kill the boys secretly, He's telling all of the people to do a pogrom and for every Mitri to get up and go try to kill his neighbor's son. We always see the danger that comes, I mean, maybe in Nazi Germany it was an exception, but the danger to the Jewish population is typically not directly from the government, but it is when the government allows the locals, the local people, to do programs against the Jews. This is what was the main problem of the Crusades. It was that a bunch of uh, lower class people were joining in these Crusades to go to, to go to Israel and fight the Muslims. And these lower class people on the way decided to kill all the Jews that they wanted. Is the lower class people, the, the, the people who are uh, lowest in society, not the leaders who are the most vicious when it comes to their hatred of the Jews. So what Paro is doing here is he's not doing a government mandate anymore. He's not secretly trying to kill the Jews. At this point, he's calling for a full-scale pogrom in which every Egyptian man kills the son of his neighbor. And that is when things get very bad, that any, any 
uh, boy who was born should be thrown into the river. Now, there's an interesting midrash that says that Paro, he said to his nation, any boy who was born should be thrown into the river. And the pasuk doesn't specify that it was any Jewish boy. It says any boy. Which means that according to the midrash, that Paro even commanded for the Egyptian boys to be killed. Now, is that the peshat? No. But the Midrash is very interesting and, is, and has probably deep meaning behind it. And it's something that we see is true because when people get, the hatred of the Jewish people can get so strong that it could sometimes lead a person to even killing his own for the sake of getting rid of the Jews. We saw that with, in Nazi Germany where Hitler, in order to kill as many Jews as possible, made some obvious sacrifices in the war on the fronts between the Russians and the Americans and the, and the British uh, he made sacrifices that were weakening his position in the battle for the sake of killing more Jews. Now, essentially what Hitler was doing was killing Nazis or killing Germans for the sake of killing more Jews. So that Midrash that says that Paro commanded even the Egyptian boys to be killed kind of shows us the precursor of how much the hatred of Jews could grow and how developed it can get. So that is the introduction to our parasha. Uh, tomorrow, Bezer Hashem, we'll study the birth of Moshe and his quick rise to, or his quick uh, rise to prominence in Egypt and then his escape from Egypt thereafter. Baruch Adonai Lulam. Amen. Amen.